Okay, we are in Hebrews chapter 10. <clears throat> we covered a lot of this last time. And uh, there are several portions that, that are the same quotes from the Old Testament that we've covered in previous passages. So again, the book of Hebrews is, is uh, quoting a lot from the Old Testament. And so that we remember what the emphasis in the book of Hebrews is, is it the writer of the book of Hebrews, whom we do not know precisely who it was who wrote the book of Hebrews. We know that it was written in about 66 to 68 AD, shortly before the fall of Jerusalem, which occurred in 70 AD. There were many Jews around Jerusalem that this is written to that were thinking about that, that had, had come into a knowledge of Jesus Christ as Messiah, but they were thinking about doing away with this and going back under the hand of Judaism so that the persecution upon them would stop. And what the writer of the book of Hebrews is doing, he's, he's warning them, don't do that, because if you do that, you are going to end up in Jerusalem, and you're going to end up in the 70 AD destruction. And so when he talks about the destruction that will come, he's not talking about a loss of salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a loss of physical life, physical destruction, physical life that they are going to lose if they end up going back into Judaism. He says, you don't have an option. It's not an option for you to go back into Judaism, wait for the, the persecution that you're getting from, other, from the Jews to subside, and then come back into a knowledge of, of, of the Messiah. That's not an option for you because you're going to end up dying in Jerusalem. That's what he's warning them about. So let's pick it up in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in verse 19, he says, Therefore, brethren, again, this is not to unbelievers. This is to believers. This whole book is to believers, those who have come into a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Again, he calls them brethren, which underscores precisely what I just said, that these are believers. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So remember what he just went through. Remember the high priest could only go into the holy of holies one day a year. One day a year, and it was an awesome and terrible thing in the sense that it was frightful. He had a rope tied to his leg so that when he went in behind that veil into the holy of holies, he had little bells at the bottom of his, his garment which would, which would ring, and they knew he was moving. If the bells stopped, they knew that the high priest was killed before the Lord, and they could pull him out by that rope that is tied to his foot. Now, this is not tradition. This is what's written in the Scriptures. This is the way it's described for us in the Old Testament. This is what was done. And you had, you had these little bells that were on the bottom of his garments, and they alternated with little pomegranates. And uh, uh, by pomegranates, I mean little uh, golden pomegranates. And they've even found 
I think, one or two of these pomegranates. That, that, uh, uh, and so they survive today in the museums in Israel. <clears throat> but this is what it was. You had the high priests go in, and they could never go in without having offered blood of animals. He says, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So look at what he does. He says that we as individuals have confidence now to enter that throne room of God, that holy place. And we take it really quite flippantly. We really do. I think I'll go talk to the Lord today. Without realizing the access that we have because of the blood of Jesus that has been offered up. It says in verse 20, by a new and living way. So this is a living way. It's not a dead way. Jesus has, has died, but he lives. Jesus lives. And, and uh, um, Jesus spoke about this type of thing that we have to realize when, 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 uh, uh, when people, when Jesus died, he lived again. I want, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 12, the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. And we're going to start reading at, uh, at verse, at verse uh, uh, 26. Mark 12, 26. There were some Sadducees. That was a, a, a sect of the priests. Two-thirds of the Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees. So there were more Sadducees on the Sanhedrin, which was the committee of 70 that ran, ran the religious uh, life of Israel. Then there were Pharisees. There was only about one-third Pharisees. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in spirits, and they did not believe in angels. And Jesus spoke highly of all of these things, and they didn't believe, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So Jesus is confronting them, and they ask him a, a question to try to trap him, and he, in his, in his amazing way, because he's the Son of God, he answers this question, but he says to them in Mark chapter 12, verse 26, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. So in other words, he's saying this, this burning bush experience of Moses is 400 years after the death 400 years after the death of these patriarchs, or particularly of, of Jacob. So, so you've got this long segment of time, but he says, he says, when God says, I am God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is speaking of them in the present tense as if they are alive. And Jesus is saying God is speaking of them as if they are alive because they are alive. Though that they have died in the flesh, they are very much alive. Remember that. Remember that as a believer. Remember that when a loved one dies in the Lord, when their physical body dies, you may lay them in the ground, but they are not there anymore. Their spirits are very much alive with the Lord. You say, could that really be? Well, Jesus said it's the case. They are very much alive. That... For believers, for those of us who are in Christ, when we die physically, our spirit goes to be with God, and one day He will reconstitute our fleshly body, and it will meet, it says, our spirit in the air on that day of the resurrection of those who have died in Christ. Those who, are, who, who die in Christ, meaning those of us who are alive and we accept Jesus, 
we will be the first to be resurrected from the dead. There is a later resurrection, and that's those who died before Jesus ever ever died on the cross, those who died not in Christ, but died loving and knowing God. That comes with a different resurrection. The first resurrection is of those who die in Christ. Jesus speaks very much of this, that they are alive. So remember that, that when there is death of a believer, they are very much alive. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 10. So he says, by a new, in in verse 20, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. The imagery that they're looking at here, in the Old Testament there was this veil, and we talked about this before, that separated the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelt, where the high priest went to meet God once a year, one day per year, and, and, and the holy place. This veil was four inches woven thick. So it was a very thick veil. That veil, it says, on the day that Jesus died, it was torn, it was rent from top to bottom. It was torn in two. God opened up access to it. But it says there is a new veil, and that is the flesh of Jesus Christ. His flesh becomes the new veil, and He's opened that up to us. When His flesh was pierced, He opened up the throne room of God to us. This is a tremendous blessing. This is His flesh. Verse 21, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. So what does the priest do? The priest is the one who intercedes on our behalf to God. I don't need an intercessor. Oh, yes, you do. We need an intercessor, and our intercessor is Jesus Christ. It says, He lives to make intercession on our behalf. Jesus lives to pray for us, it says in the book of Hebrews. He is our high, high priest. He is the one that's there saying, Father, this one can come in. This is one of my blood-bought children. Let him in. This is one could come in. Because he is the priest that is there. We have access. He says we have a great priest or a high priest over the house of God. It's because of him being there that we have access. Let us draw near with with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. So look what he's doing. He's beckoning us to draw near. Think about the struggle we have in life of spending time with the Lord. You know, I'm just so tired today. You know, he just doesn't know how busy I am. You know, in the the old days, they didn't have so much to do. You know, they just had to gather all their food for that day. But they didn't have much to do. Did you know in the 1700s, a man would spend about 75% of his laboring hours making the money to get the food for he and his family for that day? We don't do that anymore. Because we could just, you know, go down to to Walmart and, you know, just get all we need for the week in like 15 minutes. Or now you don't even have to go to Walmart. You just go online and Amazon, boom, you know, it's there in a couple hours if you want it. So he's what he does is he opens this up to us. He says, what more could I do? How much greater access could I give you? And I'm ashamed of myself. I'm ashamed of myself. Because I don't readily take advantage of this as I should. 
God opens the door for us. He says, there's a great high priest. The veil has been opened for us. And he says, let us draw near with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean. This assurance of faith. You know, the scriptures talk about the way we view God is the way that He will be, come to us in our perception. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 19 so you get a sense of, of what I'm talking about. In Luke chapter 19, in Luke chapter 19, and uh, we're going to start reading, we're going to start reading around verse 20. But let me give you the context of the story. Jesus is relating something about the kingdom of heaven. And remember, there was, there, there was these, uh, there were these slaves to whom he had given minas. He had given coins. And, uh, uh, to, to one, he had given ten coins. And he said, you know, go and trade with these. And he got ten more, or five and five more, two and two more. There was, there was the last slave. And, and, uh, um, in verse 20, it says, And another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept and put away in a handkerchief. So in other words, he gave them things, they should have traded with it and used it. The last one just kept it and he hid it. He says in verse 21, For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you did not sow. So in other words, how did this slave view the master? He viewed the master as an exacting man. He says, I'm afraid of you. I view you as an exacting man, meaning, you know, a hard taskmaster. So I'm afraid of you. Because I know that you have the ability to take up what you didn't even lay down. In other words, you, you can just have fruit come if you want to. And to reap what you didn't even sow. You have this amazing ability. I'm just afraid of you. I knew you to be an exacting man. That's how he viewed God. What was the result of that? Verse 22. He said to him, By your own words, I will judge you. You worthless slave. Did you not know that I am an exacting man? taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow, then why did you not put your money in the bank and having come, I would have collected it with interest? In the same way that we view God, if we view Him to be mean and hard, He will appear to us to be mean and hard. It says the children of Israel in the book of Exodus, when they saw the giants in the land, very big people, the sons of Anak, very big men. And you know, Jews are little men. Big brains, but, but little men. And, and, uh, it says that we viewed them and we became grasshoppers in their sight. We were like grasshoppers in their sight. And so we became in our own sight. In other words, when they viewed themselves as grasshoppers, they lost all power. When they viewed themselves as defeated, if we view God as being mean and angry and an exacting man, we never take advantage of all that He's opened up for us, being able to come into that throne of grace. How we view God is so often how He will be perceived by us as a result of that. Look in, in, in Luke chapter, I'm sorry, in, in, in the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 18. Psalm chapter 18. 
Psalm chapter 18, and we're going to start reading from verse 25. Psalm 18, verse 25. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself astute or twisted or crooked. In other words, if I view God as being crooked, if I think, oh, He's crooked, this is how I will start acting upon that perception of God. If I view Him as being kind and gracious and good, let me share with you something about my own life. I really think God favors me. I really do. I think God really likes me. And when people have come, ag- <clears throat> come against me in business, I'm, I think to myself, they don't know who they're doing this to. They are going to be in for it so bad because God likes me so much. It was almost 40 years ago that I gave my life to the Lord. And I have spent so many hours in the Lord's presence just enjoying Him. And I know that He loves me. And you may think, oh, that's just so prideful of you. But, you know, I just keep this in. I'm just sharing with you. This is just between us, all right? But I know God really favors me. And when people have come against me, I'm thinking, you don't know what you're doing. I meant you no harm. Why are you doing this to me? This is what I'm thinking in my own mind. You don't know what you're doing. And sure enough, it's not long before things happen to these people that just destroy their lives. Just destroy them. Because I know God favors me. I look at God. In my perception, God is one who looks upon me with favor. That's the way I perceive God. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. I view God as looking upon me with tremendous favor. I view God as looking upon my children with tremendous favor because of His favor upon me. Really. I know that He is going to be good to them because of His favor upon me. Because I have asked Him to. He will look upon them with favor. This is what He's doing in, 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 uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. He's calling us into His presence to enjoy Him. He says, look, He's done everything. He's done everything for you. you got a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Full assurance of faith. View God as one who loves you, who is kind to you, who is gracious to you. And so He will be kind and gracious to you. If you view Him as an exacting man, as a taskmaster, that is the way you will perceive Him in your life. That is the way you will see Him in your life. Jesus said to the man who viewed Him in that way, He called Him a wicked slave. And I know that that upsets your little politically correct sensitivities these days. How could Jesus have said that? Well, remember, He's the Son of God. He's allowed to, to do anything He wants to do. All right? That's what he did. That's the way he dealt with the issue. He called him a wicked slave. And then you can look at the the corresponding story in, in the gospel according to Matthew. And it says, and take that wicked slave and throw him into outer darkness. 
He says, you perceive me as being hard, exacting man. That's what you're going to find in your life then. He says, let us draw with near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. God takes the blood of Jesus and sprinkles us clean from a guilty conscience. He says, he says in, 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 from an evil conscience. This is something that he does. He frees us of the guilt of sin. The blood of Jesus frees us from the guilt of sin. This portion, this chapter says that the, the offerings had to be made over and over again, year after year. The offerings had to be made. But the blood of Christ, once and all, once and for all, is sufficient because the blood of animals did not take away sin. It was just like a trash can that you put a lid on it. And the trash is still there and it really stinks. But it was when Jesus came that he got rid of that totally. It's gone. He got rid of that. And he says he gets rid of the evil conscience. That he even deals with our conscience. Lord, thank you for forgiving my sin. Thank you for what you've done. And he says, our bodies washed with pure water. Remember Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He says, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. This is his call to the Hebrews. He says, don't give up your confession of hope. You've confessed the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't give it up. You have no idea all that you're going to lose. And let us consider how to stimulate... He says... Uh, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He will fulfill the things he's promised. Jesus said he will come back. He will bring us to be with him. Believe it. Jesus will do that. He is the one who promised it. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the whole community in the body of Christ. We cannot become strong in the Lord alone. So whenever people say to me, well, you know, I, I just worship God alone in my home, I think you'll never grow. You will never grow because we are in the people business. It is the body of Christ and we need one another to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. In other words, we need others encouraging us in love and good deeds. And Jesus said, when the, when the devil in, in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, offered to Jesus all the riches of the world and this glory, Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Only in the worship of God and the service of Him will we be fulfilled. This comes in the body of Christ. We need the encouragement of one another. He says, don't neglect this. In the context of our drawing close to Him, you want to maintain a good heart and being able to draw close to the Lord? Learn that it comes in the context of the body of Christ. Go ahead and try to say... You'll go three months, you'll just, you know, watch some Sunday service on TV or you'll bounce around from here to here, here to there and have no commitment in the body of Christ. You will begin to become quite cynical. It is amazing how our wicked hearts can become cynical. Why, why do those people do that? I don't like that church. I don't like the way that pastor taught it. Wherever you go, you start not liking it. And we can become really just, just really ugly people inside. You get involved in the body of Christ and you start laboring in the body of Christ, doing good for others, being about good works. And all of a sudden, you don't even notice all these other things because you're too busy laboring. And you want it to go well because you are now invested in this personally. This is the whole thing of the body of Christ. Then he says in verse 26, 
For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think you will deserve, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. This has nothing to do with salvation. He's never talking about dying in utter darkness for the rest of eternity. If it were so, he would have said it. This is not something that they could lose. He said, you are going to, you're going to die in a destruction. That's what's going to happen. You don't think God deals harshly with sin? You take a man. You take a man who forsakes the vows of his marriage and goes and sleeps around with another woman. You will see that man fall. You will see the destruction around that man. He will bring great grief into his marital relationship, into his children's lives, and you will see that man regret that for years. I've seen men lose their jobs, lose everything over that. You think you can mess around with sin? You can't. There is judgment. There is judgment against sin. It says God will judge His people. That He does. There are penalties for sin. You don't lose your salvation. That's not what He's talking about. He says you go back into Judaism. You go back into Jerusalem. You're going to see what a real fiery hell is in that in the destruction of Jerusalem. You're not going to lose your salvation, but you're going to be consumed with a fire. And he says, everyone who laid aside the law of Moses died without mercy. They didn't lose their salvation. Even when men, when Achan, he even called them son, he says, confess this. He brought Achan to a point of confession. Now, Achan was then killed for his sin, but he wasn't lost for eternity. No, this is what he's saying, that, that God has granted you this. God has granted this. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Meaning that if we stop sinning, there's this sacrifice for sins that spares us lots of trouble. Lots of trouble. And the man doesn't just wake up in the morning and say, I think I'll go and commit adultery today. No, there were several events that led up to that point where he was thinking about that person over and over again and flirting with that person over and over again before it led to an adulterous affair. You take that and you continue to walk in the sin of that and then you will fall into this and it brings great destruction. There are sins that bring great destruction. And then he says in verse 32, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. So here again, he's saying, when you first got saved, you went through great struggles. And you identified with those who were undergoing through persecutions. I see this sort of thing happen. So I sometimes I see international students come to the United States and they come from countries where there's persecution and they, there's, there's not the freedom that we have here. And they're really excited for the Lord and they're passionate for the Lord and they're going to prayer meetings they're really excited about the Lord. You give them two or three years here where there's very little persecution. You may say, oh, there's 
tremendous persecution at my work. Yes, they got upset with you because you wore a Christian shirt. I'm not talking about that. That's, that's kindergarten. I'm talking about real persecution. All right? You give them this tenderness that comes among our society two or three years, and they, they lose their passion. They're not as passionate for the Lord. They're not as on fire for the Lord. And what he's trying to do is rekindle to them. He says, remember what you went through when you first got saved. The public spectacles that you went through when you, when you came in to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Don't throw that away. It has great reward. In verse 37, For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. When we shrink back, God's soul has no pleasure in us. The things that I regret most in life are not the instances where I spoke up for the Lord. That I have no regret. I look back on those with, with, with great pride and excitement. The things that I regret, regret the most were instances when I should have spoken up for the Lord and I stayed quiet. Those are the instances that I re- regret the most. He says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Every decision we make in life is an act of faith. There are decisions that confront us every day and there are acts of faith. We live by faith, the scriptures say. We live by faith. We live by faith. When your kids start getting older, you have to put them in a car and let them start driving. And you're like, what am I going to do? This is my little baby. We need to, to walk by an act of faith. There are things that we confront by acts of faith. We live by faith. My righteous one shall live by faith. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Look what he does. He says, you guys, you're not going to shrink back to destruction. He looks upon them with a positive attitude, but we are of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. And this book of Hebrews worked. This book of Hebrews kept them from going back into Jerusalem. This book of Hebrews protected them. And he speaks positively. He says, be careful about this stuff but I know you're not going to do it. He spoke positively to them. He says, but you're those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Let us learn to draw into God. He's opened up all of this for us. Let us look upon Him as the one who protects us. Let us look upon Him as the one who watches over us, not as an exacting man waiting to clobber us. Trust me, He doesn't have to do that. There's enough sin in our own lives that could get us into trouble. He doesn't have to clobber us. Let us look upon Him as one who is gracious and displays favor toward us. And then let that be a reality in your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word, for the truth of Your Word. You are so good. Lord, I pray for these young people that You would bring them to a place where they would seek You And come into that throne room because you have done everything. You've put in a new veil which is the flesh of Jesus which was rent to have us come in. It's the blood of Jesus that has opened the door. You have set Jesus there as the great priest that opens the door for us. That intercedes for us. Father, I pray that these young people would learn to draw in to God's presence. And they would look upon God. They would look upon you, O Lord, as one who shows favor toward them. Father, I pray for your mercies on these young people in the name of Jesus. Your mercies on these young people in the name of Jesus. Draw them into that place where they would view you as kind and then receive your kindness.
where they would view you as gracious and then receive your graciousness, Lord. Father, that they would be able to walk in the treasures of the glory of God, that they would walk in your favor. Your mercies be there. In the name of Jesus, I pray. And Lord, I pray for those here who do not know you, who do not have access to this throne room because they've never received Jesus. Father, I pray that this day they would pray, Lord, forgive me because I am a sinner and come into my life. In the name of Jesus, amen.